Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Dugout.uk football podcast. I'm Ollie Coulson, joined by my co-host Lee Tutor. Lee, how are you this week? I'm good. How about you? I'm really good, thanks, mate. And we're also joined by the Dugout's resident Sunderland writer and fan, Sam Johnston. Sam, how are you this evening? Very well, thank you. And thank you for having me. We're very, very happy to have you, Sam, for the first time on the podcast. Um, and I'm sure it won't be the last. But on this week's episode, we're going to take a look back at the Premier League and how it's starting to shape up uh, with four games into the season. We're also going to take a brief look at the Champions League group stage. And with Sam here, it's obviously we're going to have to talk about Sunderland um, and as well as a couple other issues in football this week. Um, so we'll get right into it with the Premier League. So the Premier League uh, game week kicked off this week, uh, last week even, with Palace and Spurs. Palace won 3-0, uh, Odson Edward making his debut off the bench. It's Nuno's first defeat as Spurs manager in the Premier League. Um, what, do we, what do we think? Um, Palace have had a, a bit of a rough start. They've had a couple of tough teams to face. Vieira is obviously brand new, not the most experienced coach, but he's pulled out a win against Spurs, which will please a lot of people on the other side of North London, uh, which Vieira is obviously famous for. Sam, what do you think of Palace and Spurs so far this season? Well, I mean, I think Palace have a lot to be optimistic about. They've made a lot of very smart signings. Um, people like uh, Wackham Anderson and um, Michael Elisa, you know, very good, talented players proven in the English system. And I think they're going to go far under Vieira. As for Tottenham, I think this was just inevitable. You know, they've, they're just going downhill. They're in decline. They've been in decline for years. They've kind of scraped a few wins, the, you know, at the beginning of the season, but... I think, yeah, we'll have a few more days like this for Tottenham this season. Yeah, I mean, my whole thing with Tottenham is they've sacked a Portuguese manager famous for parking the bus and replaced him with a Portuguese manager famous for parking the bus. Um, Lee, what what do you think of the kind of Spurs so far? Do you think do you think those three wins at the start of the season actually mean that much for them or? Is it going to be more like this, as Sam says? I think it's this, exactly what happened last season with Tottenham. They, they had a very good start. They won a few games. Everyone thought, oh, this, this is going to be the year that they go on and they look like at least winning something. Um, but it, it's all it all just went to pot against Palace. That seems to be, They seem to have one game where they have an absolute nightmare and then everything turns from there for Tottenham every season. And now you think they've... They've got Tanganga suspended for the next game. Dyer went off injured and they've got Romero and Sanchez. I'm not sure about Sanchez's situation, but I know I don't think Romero is going to be playing in the next fixture after what happened with Argentina. So you're looking at their centre-back pairing now and I think they're really going to struggle because Ben Davies, who's the natural option to play on the left now for them, came on after Tanganga got sent off and gave away a penalty in the first 15 minutes they were on the pitch, it was just one of those one of those games. But I don't think they've recruited very well. I think Christian Romero is a good signing, um, but that a good signing for a club that are aiming to try and push for a European spot, not for a club that's already in Europe and trying to push on. Um, Nuno, again, I, I, I don't see why they appointed. I don't think they wanted to appoint Nuno, in fairness. They did try... I think he was something like seventh choice manager in the end because he was the only one who wanted to, <laughs> who would dare work at Tottenham in the state it's in. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's not been great for them um, with their whole kind of chaotic summer, nearly losing Harry Kane and not losing Harry Kane. And, you know, that kind of, it, that, you could argue Nuno kind of got an extra bit of a new manager bounce out of keeping Harry Kane because everyone was so expectant of him to go to City, but it didn't happen. Um, other results this week um, that we're not really going to talk about that much. Um, Wolves, um, Tuna win over Watford, sort of run-of-the-mill result you'd expect. Wolves getting their season kind of underway with new manager Bruno Large. A um, couple of their players starting to look really, really good. Um, Southampton, West Ham, a bit of a controversial one for the Fantasy Premier League fans as Antonio got sent off after a blistering start to the Premier League season. Uh, he's actually currently the top scorer in the Premier League, Antio Mikhail Antonio. Uh, but now he's suspended for a few games. Um, and Brighton continue their good start to the season with a 1-0 win over Brentford. I think they sit fifth in the table at the moment, which is fantastic for them. 
Um, and other results, Arsenal get their first points of the season with a 1-0 win at home to Norwich. I mean, Arsenal, Arteta, it's just a disaster, really. You've beat Norwich, well done, you know. Um, I mean, City, Manchester City, who I support, last two games, Arsenal, 5-0 win at home. Week before, Norwich, 5-0 win at home, you know, and Arsenal could only get a 1-0 against them. You know, it's not looking good for either side in North London, if you ask me, because I, I just don't see the direction at Arsenal at all. What about what about you, Sam? What do you think of Arsenal this season? Well, I think Arsenal is suffering from a manager who's out of his depth and is now chopping and changing constantly. And you're never going to get the stability that's going to bring results if you keep chopping and changing. They've got, and it's probably unfashionable to say this now, they've still got a good core of players who are only going to get better but he needs to pick a system, pick 11 players who are going to play when they're fit, if they ever want to get anywhere, back to where they were under Wenger. Yeah, yeah, I'd, agree. I'd pretty much agree with everything there. Uh, Lee, quickly, what do you think of Arsenal's kind of chances this season? I mean, I mean, we've spoken about Arsenal a few times on this podcast now already, Yeah. but no one could have expected a start this bad. You know, four games in, they've had one win and the other three were pretty disastrous losses for them. I think... Um... They've the the problem isn't and and Arteta's a big part of the problem. Like Sam said, with the tactical consistency, the chopping and changing, he's played every system you could possibly think of in the what just over well almost two years he's been there now, aren't he? But um, and at the same time though, I don't think he's a sole issue. That recruitment has to be the most questionable recruitment in the Premier League. There's no real strategy to it there's not a certain kind of player they're going for. Except at least now it seems like they're going for younger developing players. But you've, you've got to compare the business to other clubs and you've got to look at £50 million for Ben White when Varane signed um, for Manchester United for £40 million in the same window. You know, Ruben Diaz, last window for where it's £65 million, I think, Ruben Diaz. I th- th- there is much more than a £15 million difference between Ben White and Ruben Diaz, at least even at the point that they were bought. Um, you know, they, they just really haven't improved the squad and they've spent a lot of money and you, you can't... They've spent the most money in the Premier League and to me, they're the club that's made the least actual improvements to the squad in the league. And spending money... Obviously, they, they said this window did the owners that they were going to spend money to make up for the Super League debacle and stuff to the fans, but you don't want to see your club wasting that much money. I'd rather I mean, sign no one. <laughs> if, I mean, if this is their apology to the fans over the Super League, it's been pretty disastrous for them. <laughs> uh, but And, and Norwich, Norwich are doing what Norwich do. They come up and they look like they're going to go straight back down. It's, it's, how, it's Norwich's financial model. But moving on to other results, uh, Manchester City 1-0 win at Leicester. Um, brilliant battling win um, by uh, Pep Guardiola's Blues. Um, I think yet again they're looking like they're look they're going to be in the title race again. Um, and everyone started to have worries about them after the Tottenham defeat at the start of the season, at the very start of the season. But I just don't think those kind of fears about not having a recognised striker have come to the fore yet. There's enough players and there's enough goals in that side already. Um, but kind of the, probably the big. Uh, story of Saturday at least uh, Cristiano Ronaldo returning to Old Trafford um, after 12 years um, we spoke on this podcast about Cristiano uh, before the international break um, when it looked like and this was the night before um, he was going to Manchester City and the day later he ended up at Manchester United um, 4-1 win over Newcastle I mean he's going to score a load for them isn't he Lee yeah, I mean, especially he's, he's playing down the middle. You know, that's where all these goals have come from. Even when he's been at Juventus, he's kind of, as, as much as he cuts in from the left, he's been playing on the left of a front pairing the whole time he's been there. Um, the opening day he scored two, just on the night we're recording. Um, you know, it's um, Tuesday night. I think um, the game might still be going on between Manchester United and um, Young Boys. Scored in his first Champions League game for them. Three goals in his first two appearances. He scored two on international duty. He's he's an absolute goal machine. But I think um, a lot of the discourse I've seen it is 
in, in terms of it not, probably not being the best signing, is it? it's a very short-term thing. He's always going to have that quality because he looks after himself so well, but it, it doesn't really represent a long-term strategy for the club when there's now players. How many people are they going to have wanting that one spot? They've got Martial, they've got Cavani, they've got Greenwood, who's now playing on the right wing, um, probably where he's best, to be honest. But they've got that many people vying for this um, these few positions and Ronaldo's a very short-term solution, albeit they, they could win a double or a treble this season if, if he turns up in every competition. But it does have the kind of air of a very short-term solution for them, especially at the... And I don't buy the, you know, the shirt sales will pay for him um, solution because at the end of the day, I think Leeds United had paid for him um, a, a couple of days later. But um, I, I think... For what they need at the moment and for what Solskjaer really needs is trophies because you can play well all you want. You can finish top four every season, but the fans there are getting impatient. And I think Ronaldo's probably reluctantly because I'm not his biggest fan, but he's probably the solution in the short term. Yeah, I think I'd say. And I know Sam's got a soft spot for Man United. So um, yeah, I'm pretty yeah, interested well- to see what he uh, thinks about that one. We'll come on to Sam in a second. Um, talk briefly about this. Obviously, we spoke about this before the international break. I'm really not a huge fan of him. I think there's a lot of kind of discourse around him, especially online, that's been forgotten about by the traditional media um, with these allegations in America that we just can't really forget about when it comes to Ronaldo. You know, regardless of, regardless of what you think of the story, I think it's something that a lot of people aren't mentioning when they should be, you know. Um, and I think it has, and, and, I, and I think it does matter. Um, but Sam, what's how, how do you see Ronaldo at United going? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, he's one of them players who has just undoubted world-class ability and he's too big to fail. And I think, you know, I do get the point, this is a fairly short-term thing. You might get one season, maybe two seasons from him. But it's it's the same as when they signed Robin Van Persie about 10 years ago. Even if you get them two seasons, as long as he scores the goals to get you to a trophy, it doesn't matter. You know, football, you, they want to win trophies. In two or three years' time, they could move on to a younger player. But when a player of Ronaldo's quality comes up, you don't say no. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I mean, it is a fair point. And obviously, it, um, until the last moment for both Manchester clubs, um, both of them were saying yes to him. And then City, and then there was a turnaround with City, and he ended up at United. Whether that was because you know, he was stringing City all along to go back to United or whether United just came in with the money. We don't know. Don't we ever will because we never know with these things. Uh, but moving on to the last few results, Chelsea 3-0 win over Aston Villa. The Romelu Lukaku's return to the Premier League continues an absolute fine form. He's an absolute beast. I don't think we really need to discuss that much. But Aston Villa without Jack Grealish, they're not the same kind of prospect, are they? And I'm loving it. Jack Grealish up in Manchester, he's loving it. He's about to play the Champions League for the first time and Aston Villa are struggling. Um, what could be better than that? Um, but one of the t- one of the more impressive results of the weekend and one of the more impressive teams at the start of the Premier League, Everton versus Burnley. 3-1 win for Everton. Rafa Benitez is returned to Liverpool, but not to the Reds. Uh, it's been a very controversial move, but it's been very successful so far. Andros Towns had absolute screamer of a goal, reminiscent of his one a few seasons ago um, at the Etihad for Crystal Palace. Uh, Damari Gray looking at some of the best business of the summer, 1.5 million from Leverkusen, um, scored a few so far. Lee, what do you think of Everton and kind of their ascent very quickly? I think, um, especially seeing how they played against us I think they're going to do really well under Rafa Benitez because although the signings on paper they haven't really strengthened that much in in terms of overall quality the signings that they they've got have obviously turned up um Damari Gray turned up against us as well but the one thing that I thought were really really impressive about Everton was how defensively solid they were and it's not the modern way I say in inverted commas to stick 11 men behind the ball, two banks of four that played against us. But it works so well if it's done properly. And Rafa Benitez is one of the managers who's, he's done that for his entire career, basically. And he's always done it with with a lot of success. And I think um, 
I think this season they're, they're going to do really well. And I think they'll pick up points where they weren't before against the bigger and better teams in the league just because that setup was just so difficult to get through. We were piling men forward. We were trying to force it wide, trying to go through the middle, tra- trying all different things, playing it short, playing it long. He seemed to have everything covered no matter what we threw at them. And it were a draw in the end, but it, again, a draw, they're not dropping points at all. And I, and I think if they carry on like that, I, I really do think that they're pushing to kind of probably where Tottenham and Leicester are at the minute in that kind of Europa Conference, Europa League spots, because they obviously, I think they finished in eighth last season, Everton, um, they're not that far out of that already, but I think they're very much in that position now. Yeah, yeah, I, I would completely agree. They look, they look kind of in that lower European contention. Uh, Sam, very briefly, Everton. What do you think of their start of the season so far? What do you think kind of the aims are for Everton this season? Um, I think Everton have spent a lot of money over the last five years under their various managers, and I think they've eventually got to try and get into Europe. Now, I don't think Rafa Benitez is the man to do that. And I know you'll think, oh, he's a Sunderland fan saying that. But Rafa Benitez is a finished manager. This is a lucky short spell. And really, they've had a downgrade in Ancelotti come the end of the season. If Everton are in the top half, I'll be very, very surprised. Uh, I mean, that's that's why we got you on here, Sam, because we get opinions like that. It's brilliant. Um, but I think we're going to move on to the main talking point from the Premier League weekend. Uh, Leeds nil, Liverpool three. The result of the game and and the gameplay doesn't really matter that much in the context of what we're going to talk about here. Um, I think I think from what I what I've seen in the game, Leeds put up a pretty spirited performance, but you like a lot of like a lot of their games this season, they just haven't been good enough. Um, drawn to, lost to in the Premier League. It's not been the best start for Bielsa. Is it second season syndrome? I think it's a bit too early to find that out. But obviously, the main talking point from this game was the injury to Harvey Elliott from a tackle from Pascal Strauch. Um, he's got a dislocated ankle, uh, ligament issues, fractures, all these sort of problems. Young kid playing in Liverpool's midfield, phenomenally talented. Um, and Pascal Strauch got sent off for it. And that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to talk a little bit about the play-on directive from the Premier League this season as well in relation to this game. Um so, Lee, my understanding is Leeds have or are going to appeal Strauch's red card. Yeah, uh, they the, the confirmed that this afternoon, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Because um, I, th- I think I think it's an unfair red card. It's a red card that, they, that they've that they given because of the impact on Harvey Elliott. Very similar to Hyungmin Son and Andre Gomez a couple of seasons ago. Um, horrible injury, but the challenge was actually quite good. Yeah, I mean, it... You can, if you watch um, the, the highlights, I know they obviously didn't zoom in on the injury or anything, but you will hear the absolute roar in that stadium as Pascal Strauch tackled Harvey Elliott. It was an absolutely brilliant tackle. And obviously the injury to Harvey Elliott's absolutely dreadful. I mean, I, I was I were at the ground on the day and I think from where I was, we couldn't really see what had happened. We just saw him on the floor and Jurgen Klopp behaving like a complete and total prick. But th- th- that aside, I, I think... Um, he went in, he won the ball. He didn't go in from behind. He didn't go in studs up. It wasn't a scissor kick like everything you're reading on Twitter. It was a very, very good tackle. And it wasn't even a, a bad, I wouldn't even call it a follow through. Those tackles happen in every game. But as as Pascal Strauch's gone in from kind of the side, Elliot's tried to twist to shield the ball. And it's, Pascal's tra- trailing leg that's caught him and it wouldn't have caused an injury had he not turned and I'm not blaming that on him at all obviously but I, I think that the way it was handled in the ground um, was absolutely terrible in terms of officiating the ref has said afterwards he was always going to give a red card but he didn't he, he played on and pretended the tackle hadn't happened for a few seconds but then Jurgen Klopp went and got in the fourth official's ear, who then came onto the pitch. Klopp came onto the pitch, which resulted in him getting a bit of um, 
backlash from the fans in the Leeds end behind him because they, they you couldn't see what had happened. They just assumed he were on the pitch whinging. He then turned around and started on some Leeds fans in the row behind and he was just flittering between shouting at Strauk, shouting at the fourth official, the ref. And just before the ref gave the red card, he, he had Jurgen Klopp had gone over to him and had an absolute screaming fit at him. So I, I, I think in terms of the decision, I think it was heavily, heavily swayed by the injury, which you can you can almost understand why it was given, but it it wasn't dealt with properly in terms of how VAR looked at it. The the J- Jurgen Klopp's behaviour was absolutely appalling as well, and I think mm-hmm. I, it, even Harley, Harvey Elliott's come out afterwards and he said it wasn't a red card, and I know there were no malice. So I'm I'm hoping this appeal is going to go through, but I'm sure the Premier League will find a way to defend him, given that they said it was um he was it was with too much intensity was the yeah. um, word. I think. The I game. mean, we we seen with the Son Andre Gomez on a couple of years ago um, that. Son Son appealed it, and I think he got it, and I think he got it rescinded the red card. Um, obviously, Leeds aren't the most well liked club by league administrators, as we've seen in their EFL days. Um, and Leeds fans have this kind of mentality that they think they get screwed over at every opportunity. So, if you, if it's not rescinded, then I'm sure that's going to be the excuse from you. Um, but I think it raises a really important point, and it's more about this play on directive from the Premier League we've got this season, where the threshold for what it what is and isn't foul has been raised. Um, you know, the tackle by Strout wasn't, you, you know, it wasn't a malicious tackle, as even Harvey Elliott said. It was just unfortunate what's happened, incredibly unfortunate for both Strout and more so Harvey Elliott, obviously, with this horrific injury that's going to keep him out for months. But, you know, referees are now told to consider more about the force of contact and whether the player is trying to use, a, use the contact to win a foul, whether it be in the penalty area or just a free kick. Um, so Sam, what do you think of this new directive from the Premier League? Is it, I don't think, I personally don't think it's very useful. I think it's just more kind of diktats from above to try and ruin the game almost. Um, that's not, that's maybe, that's obviously not their intention, but it's what they're causing. What, and I'm sure you have a similar opinion. Well, I mean, I think, you know, this debate's quite interesting because as a Sunderland fan, we have quite a privileged position given we've watched Premier League football week in, week out until fairly recently, and now we've seen how it's done in the EFL. And I think this play-on directive has a lot of potential, and it's bringing the Premier League back into line with how the EFL is on in terms of giving fouls. Because the Premier League was getting too soft. We had an inordinate amount of penalties given last season. You know, you feel as if, you know, just going within five yards of somebody, a free kick was given. So I think actually if we let the game flow, we'll get a better product. But I do appreciate the need to strike a balance. And I think, you know, the professional elite group of referees will find that in due course. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Lee, what do you think of this new directive? Do you think it's kind of worthwhile at all? Uh, I think less less to do with bringing it into line with the Football League, but more just in respect of it. I think the, the the aim of it is is the, the right it's in the right place in terms of what it's trying to do, like you said, in terms of discouraging simulation basically and not giving away those extremely soft. You know, if 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 you stand still wanting a player to run into the back of you and he does, the refs are waving it on, which is fair enough. But I think the, the issue comes now when when you see um when you see especially Burnley, three of their games I've seen this season, the one against Liverpool where you don't know whether to dismiss it or not because it's Jurgen Klopp complaining and he does that for a living. But then when you actually watch the game, it's it's less. it seems less about discouraging simulation and more allowing genuine fouls to happen on the pitch. Like I think Bamford said in his interview after we played Burnley, it was like Tarkovsky had done some jujitsu on him or something. He just absolutely flipped him over inside the first five minutes and the ref didn't give anything because it were off the ball and he saw it as a just a bit of a tussle between two two lads. But I think Tarkovsky's tackle on Richarlison, to me, that that was just given as as, as a you know a, cl- a clean tackle in the end. Or I don't know if it was given as a foul, but not a booking. But for me... That was a 
much worse challenge than the one that Pascal Strout found himself sent off for. And that I, I think that it does just, you don't want to say it comes down to the officiating, but in terms of the idea and what the referees are meant to be doing, it's a brilliant idea, but the officials in this country are dreadful and it's not being implemented as it was meant to be initially. And it's inconsistent. And especially when you've got VAR looking at it, VAR's there to keep the consistency, to make sure that those decisions, that the rules are applied in black and white. And it, there still seems to be an even bigger grey area this season than there was last season with the with, with where VAR's intervening and what, what a foul is and isn't. The officiating in this country is shocking. You know, we've seen referees go to the Euros, go to the Champions League, go to the Europa League, and they perform okay, but they come back to the Premier League and they drop absolute shockers. You know, all this directive is going to do is confuse the situation more about what is and isn't a foul. It's going to turn the game a bit more stop-start because referees in this country don't simply don't know how to referee, in my opinion, properly. You know, they need to look at how they how this a similar directive was implemented in the Euros, how it's implemented across Europe, and take heed from that. But they simply don't. And, they, and we've spotted this with VAR as well um, since it was introduced a couple of years ago. Um, I just don't think it's going to help anything. I just think it's I just think it's another pointless kind of diktat from above to try and help the referees when all it's going to do is hinder them even further because they're not up to scratch. Um, you know, we've seen managers come out against it. Jurgen Klopp has, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has, Pep Guardiola has. And one thing they all, all three of them and many more have talked about is preservation of the players. You know, the, the players, you know, playing more games, they don't want that. Um, and there's ideas in football which kind of hinder that as well. But I think this foul, this play on directive is also going to be a part of that because players are going to face worse tackles, are going to face worse challenges. And we're going to see more injuries like the ones of Harvey Elliott. It's a freak injury but they're becoming more and more regular. We're seeing these types of injuries every season. So we've got to be aware of that going forward. So moving on to the next part of this week's episode of the dugout.uk football podcast, we're going to talk to Sam about Sunderland. Um, Sunderland are in their fourth season in League One, fourth consecutive. Um, and every year, every year, they say, this is the year. We're finally going to go back to the championship. Um, and this year, they've actually started really, really well. They're top of the league at the moment, 15 points, played six, won five, lost one. Um, it's been a great start to the season for Sunderland. Um, so I'm, I'm really just going to hand it over to you, Sam. How, how's this? Because you're, you're a match-going fan to the Stadium of Light. Um, you've been on a couple of the away days as well. How do you think it's going? Are you are you happy? What are the aims for Sunderland this season? We talked about Sunderland on the EFL podcast a few weeks ago. Um, we all kind of slated them saying this is actually going to be their year. Do you think it's going to be their year? Well, I'm not going to make any kiss of death endorsements this early on in the season. But I think what's changed now is we've gone from being a team who've thought, well, the way to get up is to scrape one nils every week and be solid at the back to kind of having a change in mentality to we'll just try and score as many as we can. And if they score three and we score four, that's fine. So I think it's a far more positive, youthful, energetic team. And I think, well, the sky's the limit, really, if we can stop teams coming in for our good young players. So, yeah, um, optimistic, but not making any bold claims just yet because we've been here before. Okay, that's interesting. Um, Lee, we've spoken about Sunderland um, on the EFL podcast, which we did a couple of weeks ago, the EFL preview. Um, and we, we think it's going to be a bit of a positive season for them. Um, personally, I hope it isn't because yeah. more mock Sam in our group chats would be a great thing. Um, but yeah, what do you what do you make of uh, Sunderland's start of the season? You can't deny it's been pretty good for them. Yeah, I mean, um, the winning games, but they're good to watch as well, which, like Sam said, seems to have been something that Sunderland were kind of lacking towards the end of last season. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're looking good when the scores are tight as well. I know against Wimbledon, I think that were a 1-0 win. Um, you know, 2-1 against MK Dons, but they're picking up the points and... They are, they are looking solid at the back, but I feel like, like Sam said, that is on the basis that they are that solid at the front 
the back line's barely having to do anything and when they are it's not that big a deal if something does go wrong but in the EFL you're always going to ship goals so I I don't think the 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 route out of the football league's ever going to be to be overly defensive because like you look at the teams that go up it tends to be the 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 top scorers who go up because eventually those who aren't first and second it comes to playoffs the positive teams are going to win those games because they're the ones going at the game getting the chances you look it were the when I can't remember who who were the playoffs between this year, um, League One going up, but but it's always between the highest scoring. It always seems to be the highest scoring teams that do better in those. Um, I think Sunderland do look at very very good this time. With not many changes to the squad, but the changes they've made being significant ones, I think are the. It seems to be the the principle keeping the squad core of the squad together while improving the team and Lee Johnson regrettably I have to admit he's quite a good manager he, he knows how to set a team up he's very tactically aware and I think as much as anything at that level he's, he's a nice bloke which when you're trying to keep a dressing room together um, especially when you're, you're looking at you know you've got a few loanies in from you know higher league clubs uh, one from Man City, which I'm sure Ollie's going to want to um, brush on at some point, <laughs> but um, Callum Doyle. But it's difficult to keep a dressing room together at that level when you've got low knees at the club. And the players who like Callum Doyle have, have been in that setup at Man City and have moved to Sunderland. The setup's going to be different. I know that you do have quite a good trade. Well, you've got brilliant trading facilities at Sunderland, probably better than we have even. But. Um, I think in terms of man management, he's brilliant and he's very tactically aware. He's already won you a cup final now, I'm sure, um, the EFL trophy, which, again, although it may not be the most prestigious trophy, winning something really helps a dressing room, especially when it's a knockout competition, because that means you've gone unbeaten in that competition to get there. And I think if you if you did end up in the playoffs again this season... I'm not saying you will. I, st- I still think you're probably going to go up automatically this season. But if you end up in the playoffs, that experience of being in the final will have, will have massively helped the team in terms of you know that that kind of must win atmosphere, that final day uh, showdown. So I, I think you're you're going to do really well this season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you kind of referenced there, we'll move on to personnel at Sunderland. Um, they, they are obviously being managed really, really well by Lee Johnson. And obviously I'm going to talk about Callum Doyle. Um, from what I've, from what I've heard from you, Sam, from what I've watched myself, I mean, 17, eight, 17 year old centre back left footed. He's for not, he's been phenomenal for you guys. Um, and that's fantastic to see, you know, when, when I at the start of the season, when I looked at who'd be going out this season, who, you know, when I found out Callum Doyle going to Sunderland League One, first ever year in senior football, I might add, he was in the under, he started last season in the under 18s, moved up to the under 23s halfway through, and now is in, and now has gone to Sunderland to be a starter, and he's, na- and he's nailed on. How impressed have you been by him and kind of the other youngsters like Dennis Serkin you've got, um, and a couple of the other guys at Sunderland this season? Yeah, well, they've been vital to what we've been doing. You know, they've been playing every single week. I mean, to start with Callum Doyle, to be 17-year-old and doing what he's doing is just outrageous. And, you know, if he can keep going, you know, the sky's the limit. He'll be an England international. You know, he'll be playing for City. You know, his composure on the ball is superb and unlike anything I've really seen at this level in a defender. But as well, the other thing he can do is he's big and physical, which is unusual for a lad his age, but he's also already a leader. You know, he has elevated Tom Flanagan, who we've had for four years, and he's been very hit and miss, into a consistent top-level defender in League One. So it's just his ability to elevate more senior players is just testament to probably what they're doing in the academy at Man City. But then you come to people like Dennis Serkin, who, you know, I don't know how we've got him in a permanent deal from Tottenham. You know, Mourinho ranted and raved over him and then, you know, he signed for a League One team. I don't know how we've done it, but, you know, he's clearly just got a lot of ability. Um, but the pick, the youngsters, I would say, have been the two who we've brought through our academy. We've got um, Elliot Embleton and Dan Neal, you know, two young centre mids 
who aren't afraid to go forward. They aren't afraid to try to kill a pass. They aren't afraid to shoot. They're going to make mistakes. But Lee Johnson said, but look, as long as you're being positive, I don't care. Just keep trying to do the right thing. And, you know, Dan Neal on Saturday scored, you know, a wonderful 25-yard goal, which I'd encourage anybody to watch. You know, and Hamilton did it the week before. Wickham, you know, these young players just incredible. And, that, and that's great to see, really, uh, for what Sunderland fans want. You know, they've been in League One, as we said, for four years now. This is their fourth season in League One now. Um, and I guess if, if, you know, last season you could have kind of forgiven Sunderland fans for thinking, we're never getting out of this place. We're never, we're never getting out of this league. Um, but with a great start to the season, you know, as you, as you said, the sky is the limit for them. Um, Ross Stewart, top scorer um, up front, four goals in the league on this season, which is a great start in the handful of games that have happened in League One so far. Um, yes, yeah, I mean, sh- surely this is surely this is the year for Sunderland now. Surely, I don't know. I mean, you know, I look back the first year we were in the league. Um, you can watch that on Netflix if you want to laugh at us, but. We, you know, it was under Jack Ross, and we had some players who were just outrageous in League One. We had players like Josh Madger, uh, McGeady when he was three years younger, Brian Oviedo, players who just did not belong in this league, Lee Catamull, you know. And we got the playoff final that year, and we got the playoff final. We went one up within five minutes. And I thought, oh, this is it. We're going straight back up. Isn't this great? Only for us to let in a 96th minute winner. So you can never say with Sunderland that this is going to be it because we'll always find a way to make it harder than it has to be. But, you know, this is our best chance since that year to do it, I think. I'm very familiar with the ability to um, bottle big games being a Leeds fan, so I definitely feel sorry for you there. I'm not going to lie. Definitely feel for you. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting to get kind of your take on Sunderland because obviously a Leeds fan, you, you guys were stuck in the EFL for 16 years before getting back to the Premier League. Um, you know, you know, do, do you see kind of comparisons between Leeds and Sunderland, that kind of never ending feeling of being stuck in the EFL? I mean, I know, I know you, I know Leeds dropped down to League One, but Leeds were there a slightly shorter amount of time. Um, and the fans always kind of had that hope of getting back up into the championship and then getting back to the Premier League. That hope kind of never died, regardless of circumstance. Um, what we've seen in the Netflix documentary. Um, is that hope kind of came back when in that first season in League One? You know, there were a lot of players in that team, as you were saying, Sam. Um, but then it's kind of died off in the last couple, but now it seems to be back. Can that hope kind of carry a team back to the championship, back to the Premier League, Lee? Um, I think it's a very difficult one because it's a different kind of hope. When we were in League One, we never really had a reason to think we weren't going to go back up because. The only reason we missed out the first season and dropped to the playoffs was because of the 15-point deduction. The next season in the play, we got to the playoffs again. Um, so similarly to Sunderland, we, we were always in with a shout. But I think that the, the real thing that kept the fans going in League One, obviously I was very young at the time, but it seems to have been that first season we nearly did it with the 15-point deficit. So even the seasons after, and we knew we were capable of doing that, we had some very big games in our last season in the league in, in terms of cup ties, obviously the win at Old Trafford in the third round of the FA Cup. And I think that really, really spurred on that team and made them, showed them how good they could be. And despite the purple patch, but not the purple patch, bloody hell, it wasn't a purple patch. It were a dreadful patch um, in the run-up to the last day of the season. You know, we went down to 10 men, went behind against Bristol Rovers on that day. Um, you know, two goals from, one from Johnny Housen, who I still love to this day, and Jermaine Beckford, who somehow has managed to wangle himself a pundit job at the club, uh, despite being terrible at that. But I think um, <clears throat> the road back were longer for us than I think it's going to be for Sunderland, despite the fact they're still in League One, because we've been very... In, in terms of as our ownership, we're a lot less stable than what Sunderland now have in place. As managers were getting sacked left, right and centre when Chilino bought the club and then he was finding himself banned from managing a football, uh, from being a director on the board of a football club in the UK because of 
tax crimes and stuff in Italy that he hadn't. And the, the just it seems to be a lot more organised and less chaotic at Sunderland um, than it was at Leeds. And I think Lee Johnson, obviously, a, a young manager, um, you seem to have with him what we had with Simon Grayson at the time until he was bullied out of the club by the board because he wanted, God forbid, he wanted a striker in the championship <laughs> and um, nearly got us up that season. But I, I think in terms of your, your management now, especially now um, at least Stuart Donald's sold the club, you have an owner who's invested in the team, which is something we didn't have until 2017. And that it was a very quick turnaround after Radrizani took over in terms of us getting a couple of decent signings in. He put some money into the club, got us the best manager we've had since his title winning seasons, to be honest, probably his best manager since Don Revy in, in terms of what he did he's done for the club. And that all happened in the space of a couple of seasons. And I think with Lee Johnson and the young core of players that you've got building, obviously you've, you've even, there seems to be a, you're taking younger players from the Premier League academies who aren't getting a look in or, or seem down the pecking order there. Um, players like you've mentioned, you were getting from Tottenham, you Niall Huggins from Leeds. You've got the, these young players who are going to be very, very good players. And there seems to be a, an, proper strategy in place at Sunderland which is something we never had at Leeds either so I, I really do think especially in terms of that and the facilities you've got you've got a Premier League stadium and Premier League training facilities they're absolutely fantastic so I, I don't think it's as it's more of a an on the pitch issue whereas in at Leeds I think it was just an absolute disaster in all areas at times um, so I, I do think once you're out of League One, which I think is this season, I think a couple more seasons, the size of your club, the gate receipts you'll get, especially back in the championship, I, I think you'll be back a lot quicker than we were. I don't see it being a 16-year ordeal. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you look back at those kind of league years, um, the, I mean, that really should have had a Netflix documentary on it. It's only the ownership of Massimos Cellino because it was just that chaotic. But we're going to move on um, back to the top of the uh, football pyramid and with the Champions League. Um, at time of recording, we've had the first two results in for the first game week. Uh, young boys have beaten Manchester United 2-1 and Sevilla and Red Bull Salzburg have drawn. Um, as I said, time of recording, the 8pm kickoffs have just kicked off. Um, so as schools come in, we may update you on the podcast live but we're going to look kind of more across the entire group stage because um, the group draw has thrown up some really kind of interesting ties. Um, we've got a return of last season's uh, semi-finals with Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain facing off. And we've got a return of um, Istanbul 2005 and the Champions League final in 2007 with Liverpool being drawn against AC Milan. Um, and a couple other fantastic um, games in there as well. Chelsea and Juventus are in the same group. Inter Milan and Real Madrid are in the same group. Um, Atleti are also in that group with Liverpool and AC Milan. And the first ever Moldovan club to make the Champions League group stage, Sheriff Tiraspol, are in the same group as Real Madrid as well. Um, so, lads, what do we think of the kind of group stage so far? Um, what do we think of the draws and the potential and the ties in some of these groups uh league kick us off there doesn't seem to be one particular group of death this time that you look at and you think there are three teams in that group that are going to batter each other i i think there's all the groups are fairly you know up for grabs in terms of at least the top three teams in that group um i think it's worth mentioning i, I could not let us get past this point without mentioning that four penalties were in the game tonight between Sevilla and salzburg only two went in. Severe missed two, not severe, which were around. Salzburg were given a penalty, which Adeyemi missed. They were given another one, which Sucic scored. He then hit the woodwork on another one before one was given to Sevilla, who scored. And um, they had um, El Nesri's being um, red carded for a second booking for simulation, which I find hilarious. That game. I missed that, but that looks like we've had the game of the tournament already, to be honest, in terms of the drama. But um, 
some some very interesting um, groups. I'm sure um, I'm sure City will be very up um, for the rematch against PSG. I know we were talking before about them potentially being the two best squads in the world at the moment. That'll be a very interesting one if Pochettino's managed to get his player discipline under control. I'm sure we'll find out before long. But um, again, um, Man United have lost to young boys and I've already had my laugh about it. So, um, but d- despite that, I, I think uh, that that's a very bad start. They've lost Juan Bissaka, which potentially means playing Brandon Williams at right back, which I'm sure Sam will be very happy about being a big, big fan of Brandon Williams. But um, it's a dreadful start against one of the easier teams to beat in that group. And, Despite Ronaldo scoring, if United are going to carry on making these poor decisions, Wambasaka's foul, it wasn't a second booking, it was a straight red card for a bad challenge. You, you've just got to look and think that if they can't mentally get to the stage where they're easily winning games against teams like Young Boys, who they're so far clear of in terms of quality, I think that's a concern. But then again, I suppose the, the response to that is that if they do drop into the Europa League, Ronaldo will probably single-handedly win them the competition. I mean, but. I mean, Manchester United's group is really interesting. They've got a, a rematch against Villarreal, which was the Europa League final last season, obviously. And Atalanta, who've just gone 1-0 up against Villarreal, I should add. Atalanta, one of the most exciting sides in European football at the moment. They are just goal-mad, attack-mad. Um, and they've been fascinating us for the last few seasons. Um, Sam, what do you make of some of the ties uh, early on in the Champions League? Obviously, we've got Bayern and, and Barcelona in the same group, uh, Barcelona and Bayern playing tonight at the, at the camp now. Um, some really fascinating games. What do you think? You see, I had the um, luxury of writing about the draw for the website, and just even a few weeks ago, while the transfer window was still going on, you're thinking there's some just amazing groups in this. I've, I think two to focus on immediately will be Group A and Group B. You know, we've touched on Group A. You've got City and PSG, just two of the best teams in the world going at it. But you've also got Leipzig, who are no strangers to going deep into Europe themselves, and they're not going to be there to make the numbers up. You know, they're going to be a tough tie for both City and PSG. And then Group B is the one I'd call a group of death. You know, you've got... Atletico, you've got Porto, you've got Liverpool, you've got AC Milan. I would hate to have to predict how any game in that group is going to go. You know, anybody could finish first to fourth. But just elsewhere, there's quality everywhere, really. You've got great ties in every group. You've got Inter versus Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. You know, you've got Chelsea, Juventus. You know, just it's just so great, you know, as a fan, just to have so much choice of great games to watch. And just to not know what's going to happen. Yeah, and I mean this is this is the great thing, you know. As a city fan, um, when that draw was finished for Group A, I was actually rather happy because for year, for the last few years we've had some very very easy groups um, on paper, and we've just piled through them with no real challenges at all. Um, so to have Paris Saint Germain, you know, easily on paper the best squad in the world at the moment, you know, when you've got Mbappe, Neymar, Messi, Nuno Mendes, um, Sergio Ramos, Marquinhos, Gianluigi Danaroma, and Kaelon Navas at goalkeeper. Um, you know, you, you, a lot of fans will be going, oh God, how are we going to play against that? But we beat them in the uh, semi finals last season. Obviously, they didn't have Messi, they didn't have Ramos, they didn't have uh, Donnarumma. Um, but they're still, but it's still an amazing tie. And to have a rematch of those games so soon is fascinating. Um, Leipzig, as you said, they're going to be an interesting challenge. They haven't started brilliantly in the Bundesliga, but Jesse Marsh, the new manager, is trying to implement a real system there as is key to the Red Bull clubs. Um, looking at some of the other ones, Wolfsburg being back in the Champions League for the first time in six years is fantastic. Um, Lee, who do you think kind of the early contenders for surprise of the group stage are? If you had to spring surprise of the group stage, I'd... <clears throat> There will be one in Group B. There'll be an upset because Porto and Milan are capable of taking points off the two bigger sides. And I think that that could easily um, result in one of them dropping into the Europa League. Um, 
probably Liverpool. Um, but um, I'd, I'd say I think Milan are going to get to the knockouts. Um, they've had a brilliant start to the season so far. Uh, the manager's been brilliant while he's been there. Um, you know, taking a club from seventh to with a second in the league last season, Milan. Uh, they had a they had a brilliant season in Serie A. Um, they, they didn't do brilliantly in the Europa League knockouts, but obviously Manchester United were a very difficult draw for them. But they did put in decent performances against Man U. They weren't rolled over. Um, other than that, um, I think um, in terms of upsets, Group C isn't one you'd really look at as a difficult group for the teams that are in there. But I could see Sporting getting to the knockouts potentially because Dortmund are so inconsistent. And, you know, Dortmund and Ajax are obviously clear of where, say, well, where, where my club are leads. They're, they're miles above that level, but they're not at the level of Manchester City, PSG. You know, they're at that level where they could drop points to teams like Sporting and Besiktas. And I think that group, and I think if, if there's an upset in there, I think it's going to be a, a symptom of them all having relatively low points. A couple, you know, each team to have a couple of draws in the group. Uh, maybe, maybe something on goal difference there. Um, but looking through the other groups, they're all fairly set. I mean, Man United not to get through would, would be an upset. Um and, you know, Villarreal, I think um, Emery set them up really well against Manchester United last time. They seem, they've, they've got a very not, you know, tight-knit squad going there. Um, but looking through the group, I think that's the only place we're really going to see much of an upset because I think the other groups are all that in, either that that far clear that the, an upset's next to impossible or that in contention that there isn't really such thing as an upset like in Group G. Salzburg, Sevilla, Lille, Wolfsburg, any of them could get out of that group. They're all at a very similar level in terms of quality in the teams. So, yeah, I think if there's going to be an upset, it's probably going to be in one of those, I'd say. Yeah, um, for me, I'm looking at Group B with just kind of love heart eyes because it's just a fantastic group, really, isn't it? To watch as a neutral. Um, Atletico Madrid, Liverpool... AC Milan Porto, it's just an absolutely fantastic group. Um, I also think a really interesting one, uh, Lille, Sevilla, Salzburg, Wolfsburg, that could be a really interesting group as a kind of, from a technical point, they've all got really interesting coaches, they've all got really interesting players. Um, Sevilla, you know, they're probably looking at getting that getting that third spot, dropping into the Europa League and winning it as they usually do. Um, but Sam, looking kind of across the Champions League, who do we think has kind of the big contenders? Obviously, you wrote an article previewing the group stage. Who do we think are kind of the teams to watch this year? Um, you know, obviously, City, PSG, um, Bayern, the big, big teams. Manchester United now with Ronaldo, if they can kind of turn around their fortunes from this opening day defeat. Who do we think are kind of the ones to watch? Who could potentially be lifting old big ears come May next year? I think, you know, when it comes to winning the Champions League, you know, you have to look at the elite clubs, people like City, people like PSG and Real Madrid. You know, it's not. I don't think we're ever going to see anything like the uh, Porto win it. But I do think there might be a few teams who surprise people with a deepish run. You know, I think you've got to look at Salzburg this year. I think they're just going to try and outscore people. And I think this might be the year it finally comes off. And they'll go surprisingly deep, maybe actually deeper than the other Red Bull club in it. And I think, you know, I think they're dark horses actually to get quite deep this year. Um, but I think that's going to be where it's going to be interesting because the truth is about European football now, you know who can win the competition, you know who can't. You just want to have a feel-good story, somebody who we can all get behind, a plucky underdog to go quite deep. And I think that'll be Salzburg this year. It's a really, that's a really interesting pick. I quite like that. Um, for me, I would probably, it's, it's probably a bit of a boring option for a surprising pick already, but Atalanta, I mean, they're just a fascinating team to watch. I watch a lot of them in Serie A and I just think they're absolutely fascinating to watch because they just don't care about conceding. They just care about scoring. Um, that semi-final behind closed doors with PSG, or it might have been a quarter-final 
uh, with PSG a couple of years ago when they had the mini tournament in Lisbon. Um, it was fascinating to watch that game because there were very there was very few goals in it, but there was a hell of a lot of chances for both sides. And they were so unfortunate to go out to that goal at the end from toward the end from PSG. Um, Ajax, you know, Ajax, they're a team famous for, you know, kind of making making a habit of interesting results. Uh, 2018-19, they made the semi-finals with that brilliant team consisting of Dusan Tadic, Frankie de Jong, Matthias de Ligt. Uh, they've got a new era of superstars with David Deresh, Anthony. Dusan Tadic is still there, still scoring loads of goals. Ryan Gravenberch, uh, Mohamed Darami, uh, Mohamed Kudus. A brilliant, brilliant team uh, full of young superstars that, that are inevitably going to sell for 50 million plus in the next couple of years. Um, Lee, what do you think about kind of big hitters? Um, who, who could, who are going to be the teams to watch this year? Who are going to be the teams who could w- go on and win the Champions League? Who could surprise us and go deep? Um, give us all kind of your thoughts on the Champions League in the later stages this year. Um, I think um, Manchester City, PSG, uh, probably j- joint favourites for me. I think, as we mentioned, the quality in the teams. Um, the, the managers that they have. Um, but again, I'd, I wouldn't put Man City as favourites because of their record when they're in the big games in the league. I'm sorry to say, Ollie, but you, you'll, you'll have been frustrated by some of the tactical decisions made by Pep when you're getting deep in that competition. And he managed to at least leave it till the final this year. Um, he just needs to learn to go one game without making ridiculous changes in the knockouts. And I think you could get there. But unfortunately, I think that's um, a little something called Pep Guardiola attacks. And I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think PSG, um, again, I think they could really struggle because, as we mentioned, um, probably I think it were in the first episode of the podcast when Messi had signed, the lack of work rate from their front you know, they're attacking four if you're thinking Messi, Neymar, Di Maria and Mbappe. I've never seen one of them trap back. Even on, on Messi's debut, I remember seeing, I'd seen the YouTube highlights because it said, oh, Messi's debut. debut. The first thing that it showed on the highlights after he came on was the ball being given away. It didn't show you it, but the ball had very clearly been given away on the right wing and Messi wasn't in shot all the way back as, as they were going through on goal. And I just think, if you come up against a hardworking team like Ajax or like Dortmund in the knockouts, who maybe aren't completely there with the quality, but in in terms of work rate, are willing to put a shift in all over the pitch, I think a team like PSG's going to go out surprisingly early. Real Madrid, I think, are in with a very good shout this season. They've got Benzema still firing. Um, they've just signed Eduardo Camavinga scored on his debut within a few minutes of coming on. He's an absolutely brilliant player. But again, he's a player who, despite having the quality, and you can see he's probably going to turn into the, the next Paul Pogba in terms of his you know attacking output, also has the defensive work rate. Very, very good out of possession in terms of his, his tackling, his tracking. A very, very good young player. Um, and I think that, a midfield of potentially Valverde, Casemiro and, well, Modric or Camavinga. I, I think that's a terrifying for anyone to play against. Um, Barcelona aren't in with a chance. I'll just leave it at that. Um, Bayern, again, they don't seem to be improving since they won the Champions League a couple of years ago. Um, well, just over a year ago, two seasons ago now, I suppose. But, um, they really don't seem to have made any vast improvements to the squad or any improvements to the squad as I look at it um, what they've got out tonight against Barcelona. Um, but again, they're one of the really hardworking teams um, all over the pitch. They put a shift in. They're, they're very direct. Um, but um, in terms of a, a long run, I'm going to go for a, a nice second romantic Ajax run because that group's very dead set by the looks of it. Um, in terms of at least them getting out. And I think if they, if they do manage to get out of that group, I think that could make for a very interesting run, like you mentioned, with the young players they've got. Hopefully, yeah, I mean, hopefully a run to the final. I mean, I mean, it would, it would be lovely because um, I really wanted them to go to the final um, that year. Um, 
and you know we would have had them in the semi-finals if we beat Tottenham, but it didn't happen. Um, but you know it, it would it would have just been a great story for Ajax, um, despite having sold Frankie Dion and Delict that summer afterward. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much all we've got time for on the Champions League. Juventus have just gone one 0 up against Malmo. Um, so this is a kind of good place to wrap up the podcast. Before we do, though, Sam, uh, we've asked every guest that's come on in these early weeks for a ridiculous um, prediction for the season, whether it be in the Premier League or the Champions League or whatever else. Um, I haven't asked you to prepare this. We haven't asked anyone to prepare this. Um, but I'm going to ask you for one right now. What's your kind of ridiculous prediction that you don't even have to justify for this season? Sam's full of these, so this shouldn't be too difficult. <laughs> Person to ask well, me. That's me put on the spot. I think the one I'm going to go for is that Leeds will be relegated and that they'll probably finish bottom. Fantastic. I like the bravery on that one. (laughs) Get you on, Sam, because you just come out with such random opinions and it's just hilarious. Thank you so much for coming on, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure it won't be the last time. Uh, any final message from you? Um, just that if you're listening, make sure to tell Lee and Ollie how great I am so they do get me back on. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. Uh, uh, Lee, any final message from you? Let's all laugh at Manchester United. That's my official message. Yeah, it's just brilliant, isn't it? Oh, we're not going to bottle it. We're not going to bottle it. It's only young boys, Atalanta and Villarreal, but they've already lost two of all on the opening day. And that's probably going to bite me on the arse tomorrow when City play. Uh, thank you so much for listening. It's been an interesting episode. We hope to have you back again very soon. Um, catch up with the rest of our coverage at the dugout.uk.